So, by the way, uh, Adam's announcement triggered something in my mind. There's a movie starring Jim Caviezel that is out for just the briefest of times in theaters now. It's called The Sound of Freedom, and it has to do with human trafficking as well. And, and Caviezel, I saw a little deal. He said, this, this is the most significant film I've been a part of. So, tickets are available online. Tina and I just bought ours, but it's like this next week. And uh, you can go to, I think, Sound of Freedom and find out more information. So, that was free. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Um, I pray that you would help us to see something in it that we can take home with us, that we can apply in our lives, that you would use your word to shape us more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. If you need a Bible, the ushers have them for you. Uh, we have a bridge Bible that uh, we keep in the entryway there. If you uh, need one, just signal one of the ushers, and they'll be glad to give you one. That way, we'll all be on the same page. It's an NIV Bible, and um, that's the one we are using. Um, so, thank you. It's hard for me to imagine that it has been almost six years since The Chosen came out. How many of you have seen at least one episode of The Chosen? Good number of you. I, I love the intro piece with the fish, you know, and they're all going the same way. And one by one, they... They, they change to blue and they turn the other way and swim against the current. It's just, just kind of neat, not going the way everybody else is going. But uh, six years old this fall. Uh, one of the things that has made The Chosen interesting to me is its cast of characters. It's got a great cast of characters. Uh, Jonathan Rumi does a wonderful job playing Jesus. I think uh, of all of the characters I've seen, all the characterizations I've seen of Jesus, this may be the first one I have really felt drawn to. Uh, like, I'd like to get to know him, you know? Does a great job. Uh, Shahar Isaac does well as Simon Peter as well, although I was a little surprised when I first saw him. He looks, I don't know, he looks a little slight for Simon Peter. I would have picked somebody a little bulkier, you know, uh, if... <laughs> If Peter's the rock, you know, maybe somebody a little more rock-like. Uh, but the one I'm drawn to in a special way is Matthew, the tax collector. I, I see heads nod. I think some of you are, are drawn to Matthew as well. They portray him as somewhere on the autism spectrum. Uh, he is really bright, and he really doesn't get it socially. Uh, just just a, a wonderful, heartwarming character. It's a great cast of characters. We're going to be looking at a cast of characters here today in John chapter 12. And so I'd invite you to turn to John chapter 12. It's on page 750 in uh, the Bridge Bibles that we have here. John chapter 12, we'll be looking at the first 11 verses. But it's a big cast of characters for such a small space. 11 short verses, and yet in those 11 verses, we're exposed to Jesus and Lazarus and Martha and Mary and Judas, a whole crowd of Jews and the chief priests as well. It's a big cast for a short space in time. And like an episode in The Chosen, uh, there is a drama unfolding. So let's take a look at the drama in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, 
where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came, not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For uh, on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So the setting is, is a dinner uh, being served in Jesus' honor just before Passover. So think March, April time frame. It's in the town of Bethany. And so I thought I'd furnish a map today. Uh, uh, Bethany is just shy of two miles east of Jerusalem, and it's about a dozen miles south of Ephraim, or Ephraim, depending on where you come from, but uh, the place where Jesus and the Twelve have been hanging out since the Feast of Dedication, think Hanukkah, mid-December. So from mid-December till long about March-April, they have been in Ephraim, and now they've come down to Bethany, and they're staying at a familiar place to them, uh, the home of uh, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. The host is not named, the host of this dinner. He's not named in John's gospel, but Matthew and Mark both tell us it's a man known as Simon the leper. Quite an interesting designation. Uh, he also lives in Bethany, uh, somewhere near uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. Some have suggested that he might be their dad. Uh, Martha, as we see her in this little drama, is predictably serving. It's what Martha does. <laughs> Lazarus is there also, and we find him reclining at the table uh, to have dinner. Uh, reclining is the way people would dine in those tables. Uh, in those days, they would sit at these low tables, reclining on their left elbow, leaning on their left elbow, it would free their right hand up to to uh, reach for the food and such. Uh, their feet would be sticking out uh, behind the person on their right. And uh, the person on the right would have their head somewhere around your midsection. So that's kind of the layout for the meal. The meal is proceeding evidently without incident until Mary, uh, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, comes in and pours out a whole pint of perfume on Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. You can just about hear the people gasp. And Judas objects, letting everybody know that that perfume could have been sold for quite a lot of money, a year's wages. 
and the money could have been given to the poor. His objection sounds very righteous, very proper, very upright. But John tells us what's really going on. He's a thief, and he would help himself to some of the money in the money bag. And Jesus steps in to referee just a little bit to tell everybody that what Mary has done here is a beautiful thing, that she has just anointed him for his burial. He knows what is soon to come for him, and he appreciates her kindness. That's the storyline. What I'd like to do this morning, though, is to zero in on three of the characters in the story in order to understand something about Jesus. And what it is is this. Jesus loves people that we might just pass by. Tina's got a relative who is one of the most thoughtful people I know. Thoughtful. Uh, and when I think of her, I think of three words. See the one. See the one. I've heard this from her lips many times. See the one. She will walk into a room full of people and she will see the one who needs a word of encouragement. She will see the one who is standing alone. And she will be drawn to that person like a magnet. And she will see what she can do for that one. See the one. Here in this passage... Uh, we see Jesus doing that very thing. He sees the one. There, there's a lot of characters here in these 11 verses, and Jesus sees the one. And I hope that by looking at this passage together, we'll see how we can do that as well. So character number one, I'm picking Mary. Mary. Uh, and here Jesus teaches us to love the eccentric one. We see Mary first in Luke's gospel, uh, chapter 10, verse uh, 38 to verse 42, where it says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Whose home is it? It's Martha's home. Hang on to that tidbit for a little later on in the message. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, Jesus, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. We see Mary lost in devotion to Jesus here, uh, sitting at his feet, soaking up every word that he's saying. And she's clueless about everything else around her that needs attention, the things that Martha is paying attention to. And Martha's getting annoyed about the whole thing. There's a lot to be done. Mary's not helping. She appeals to Jesus. And Jesus defends Mary's choice. Now, we may not think that unusual, uh, that she would be sitting at his feet listening to him while her sister's preparing the meal. But in that day, it would have been very unusual. Her place was 
helping to make preparations. Her place was tending to the details of Jesus' visit, facilitating the event, not sitting at his feet. So now we arrive at today's text, John chapter 12, and we find Mary doing the unusual thing again. She shows up at this dinner at the home of Simon the leper, and she does something big and bold and seemingly out of place. She breaks a bottle of expensive perfume open and pours it on Jesus' feet and wipes his feet with her hair. And you might think, what's wrong with that? Well, a couple things. First of all, think of the sheer impracticality of it. It is just totally impractical. A full pint of perfume. How much perfume or cologne do you put on? A little you know, a little spray or maybe just a little, little dab on your neck, but a whole pint? Isn't that a bit much? You ever been in a room when someone walks in with too much perfume on and heads turn and is looking at that person? Who is this? And then, have you ever spilled a whole pint of something? Ever spill a pint of milk on your kitchen floor? And it, it seems like it's going to take forever to get it all up. What's more, it's expensive perfume. Uh, it says in the NIV that it was worth a year's wages, literally 300 denarii. And a denarius was one day's wage for a working person. One day's wage. Put in a good full day of work, you get a coin, a denarius, for your efforts. 300 of those. Okay, so if we're looking at today's minimum wage, $15 an hour, an eight-hour day would be worth, eight, uh, worth $120. 300 of those, you're talking $36,000. It could have met a lot of need. Judas had a point. If you were looking to do some kind of outreach in the community for the sake of the poor and you were given a budget of $36,000, do you think you could do something with that? Absolutely. So if you're thinking of practicality, what Mary did was totally impractical. But besides that, it was also exorbitant. It was over the top. It seemed excessively showy. She breaks open this, this expensive perfume, pours it all out, and then wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. It's too much. It's too much. You know, maybe just a little bit of perfume. Uh, maybe use a towel. It just seems too theatrical. It's over the top. Its exorbitance almost makes it annoying, like the person who keeps applauding after everybody else has stopped. Is that annoying? Or the person who keeps talking long after you get it. You, you got his point, you understand, you, you agree, and he keeps on going. It's annoying. And you wonder what the others in the room were thinking. Come on, lady, don't you think it's a bit much? But instead of being annoyed, Jesus affirms the value of what she's done. She's prepared his body for burial. There's an account in Mark chapter 10 where Jesus meets this rich young ruler. You've probably read the account before. And What's interesting about how Mark tells it is he says he looked at this young man and loved him. 
I think something like that is going on here. Mary does this. Jesus looks at her and loves her. Instead of being annoyed, he shows his love for her. He, he looks at this impractical, exorbitant, eccentric woman and shows his love for her by defending her. In Luke chapter 10, that we looked at a couple minutes ago, when this same Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his every word, he defends her, showing that sitting at Jesus' feet is not a waste of time. Here, in John chapter 12, now she's washing Jesus' feet. And he defends her again, showing that giving our very best to Jesus is not a waste of resources. So, you got anybody in your life who's a bit eccentric? Who's over the top? Don't look at them right now. <laughs> Don't stick your elbow in that person's ribs. Just think of someone. I've got a friend I work with in the honor flight who is big and bombastic, and he often offends people. And some people have written him off. Some people don't want anything to do with him. Jesus is teaching me how to love him. What do you do with that eccentric person in your life? Jesus teaches us we can love them. See the one. See the one. See the eccentric one and show them the love of Jesus. Character number two. I'm picking Judas. Judas is the one Jesus uses to teach us to love the one who won't pay you back. Got anybody like that in your life? That person probably has a couple of your garden tools right now, maybe a couple of your books, maybe some of your money, and you look at the whole situation, you realize you're probably not likely to get any of that back. What do you do with that person? Judas sees Mary's exorbitant display, and he's annoyed. He's indignant. He's the one who's been thinking and wanting to say, come on, lady, that's too much. But it's more than his being annoyed at her display. He speaks up in verse 5. He says, why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. And he's got a point. It's a lot of money that that's worth. It could have been given to the poor. His objection sounds really pious. It looks pretty holy for saying it, I suppose. You ever see someone state their opinion on something, something that good and godly people have disagreed with for hundreds of years, and they state their position like it's the only one that could possibly be biblically accurate? And sometimes when I hear people like that, I wonder if they came to their conclusion before or after they searched the scriptures. Did they search the scriptures to come to that, or did they come to that and then search the scriptures to support it? A little bit of grace is a helpful thing. But what isn't obvious to everybody in the room is Judas's motive. We can't see it. Nobody in the room knew that Judas would be betraying Jesus in just a couple of days. To them, he looks like just another one of the disciples. But John, writing later, tells us what's going on there. He's a thief. He would help himself to the money in the money bag. So did Jesus know that Judas would do those things when he picked him? 
Well, sure he did. Sure he did. And yet for three years, Jesus let Judas travel with him, let Judas listen to him teach, let Judas eat at his table. For three years, Jesus shared life with him and shared spiritual truth with him. He even washed Judas's feet on the night he would leave the table and go and betray Jesus. Jesus talks about loving the person who can't pay you back. Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 43, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He's perfect in his love. He, he showers his love indiscriminately. Sunshine and rain, he gives them to people who are, are characterized as good and those who are characterized as bad. He's an indiscriminate grace giver. And he tells us we can be that too. Jesus also talks in Luke chapter 14 about loving the person who can't pay us back. Uh, Luke chapter 14, starting at verse 12. When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back. And so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. and You'll be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So Jesus tells us to love the person who won't pay us back. In fact, he tells us to go out of our way to find the person who can't pay us back. How can he ask us to do that? Well, he did it himself. He showed love to even Judas, the one who not only wouldn't pay him back, but the one who would betray him. So, you got anybody in your life who doesn't pay you back? Whether it's because they can't or because they won't, Whatever you give them is gone. Give anyway. See the one. See the one who won't be paying you back and show them the love of Christ. Character number three. Who would you pick? Character number three is a spectator to this drama in the room. We don't hear from him in this passage. In fact, we never hear from him he is silent. He doesn't have a speaking part in all of Scripture. You know who it is? It's Lazarus. Lazarus. And here Jesus teaches us to love the unnoticed. He's mentioned four times in this short passage, four times in just 11 verses. But that's it. That's where it ends. He's just mentioned. He's there. He's just been brought back to life, and it's like nobody notices him. You'd think they'd be pressing him with questions, right? 
if he were in the room, wouldn't you? Uh, hey, Lazarus, what was it like? What was it like? I mean, did you see a light? Did you see angels? Did you see anybody you knew? Uh, was Uncle Bob there? Was, was Rover there, our favorite dog? Was dog are dogs in heaven? You know, Lazarus, what, what can you tell me? By the way, I don't put too much stock in near-death experiences. There's no shortage of books and stories about what people say they saw, but the fact is they weren't dead. They were just near death. And the stories are so varied, it's like you can say about anything you want as long as you say you were near death. If you want to get a biblical perspective, I think the person to look at is Lazarus. And he doesn't say anything about it. And I think the reason why is because it's not for us to know yet. All we know is that when we die, we will be with the Lord, and that is enough. So Lazarus is mentioned here, but nobody seems to notice him. We know Jesus loves him. We're told that twice in chapter 11 when he raises him from the dead. In verse 3, the one you love is sick, Lord. The one you love. And in verse 36, the onlookers say, see how he loved him. So even if nobody else is noticing him, Jesus does, and he loves him. But let's just take a moment to consider the man Lazarus. He's been four days dead, and he's now back to life. You'd think he'd be mobbed by curious people. You'd think he'd have something to say. You'd think he'd have a powerful testimony. But he says nothing. He has no speaking part. The Pharisees don't interrogate him the way they interrogated the man born blind in chapter 9. They just make plans to kill him because he's living evidence of what Jesus can do. Jesus loves him, but he doesn't include him among the 12. He's not one of the disciples. He doesn't go with Jesus into Jerusalem. Anybody wanting to see this man that's come back from the dead has to come to Bethany to see him. He doesn't play any part in the New Testament church. You'd think he could play a really important part. He doesn't travel with the Apostle Paul, doesn't have a ministry of his own. You would think he could have just a dynamic ministry. The only place we see him is in a home. And his sister Martha seems to be the head of that home. Remember from Luke 11, I said, hang on to that? It was Martha's home. Lazarus just seems to be living there. And when Martha is upset that Mary isn't helping, who does she appeal to? Lazarus, her brother? She appeals to Jesus. He has no wife. He has no children. In chapter 11, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, Jesus refers to him as our friend Lazarus, as though the 12 needed a reminder that he was of some worth. After the shortest verse in the Bible, John 13, 35, Jesus wept, the onlookers are astounded at the depth of Jesus' love for this guy. Why would that be? 
One author has suggested that Lazarus may have been developmentally disabled, somewhere on the autism spectrum, maybe without speech. Add up the things that we just looked at, and it could be true. It's a fascinating theory anyway. If it is true, it shows the love of Jesus for the disabled. But it's one of those things we will just have to wait until we get to heaven to find out for sure. Whether Lazarus is developmentally disabled or not, he seems to go unnoticed throughout the whole narrative. But not to Jesus. He loves the one others don't seem to notice. I don't need to ask if you've got anybody in your life who goes unnoticed. Fact is, we're surrounded by people who feel that way from time to time. The most connected and confident among us have days when they feel like a zero with the rim knocked off. I have really been impressed through my visits with you and through reading through the results of the Ministry Insight tool at the relational strength of the bridge. It's a wonderfully relationally strong church. People feel welcomed here. People feel uh, important to others here. Relationships have been identified as one of the great strengths of this church. The thing that impressed people from the start of their time here and the thing that keeps them coming back. And yet, on any given Sunday, people come in here sometimes feeling lonely and alone and desperate for contact. They need somebody to see the one. They need somebody to see the one others aren't seeing at the moment. See the one who is unnoticed and show the love of Christ. Jesus loves people that we might just pass by. The eccentric one, the one who won't pay you back, the one who often goes unnoticed. What's it take to love like that? What's it take? It takes the same thing that it takes to live the rest of the Christian life. Faith. Faith. We can love the eccentric one because by faith we can trust that God has brought that person into our life for a reason, and we can be Christ to them. We can love the one who won't pay us back because by faith we know we're ultimately giving to the Lord. It doesn't matter that we don't get paid back here and now. And we can love the unnoticed one because by faith we can see that person as one who's been created in the image of God, and we can love that person simply because they bear that image. And we can love like that because Jesus loved like that. And he gave us a new command, John 13, 34, love one another as I have loved you. There's the standard, as I have loved you. And as we see him love like that, we can love like that. That's the standard. We love like he loved us. See the one. 
We are coming now to the point in our service where we're going to take communion, the Lord's Supper. It has two elements that remind us of the incredible love of Jesus. And we're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved when we didn't deserve it. He took the first step. And he gave his life, allowed his body to be given for us, allowed his blood to be shed for us, that we might receive forgiveness and a restored relationship with God the Father. This table is for all who have called upon him for salvation, for all who have invited him to be their savior. And if that doesn't describe you, a couple things. One is you can just uh, not partake in the Lord's Supper this morning, and that's fine. No one will think less of you. But maybe today's the day. Maybe today's the day when you say, Lord Jesus, I, I recognize that what you did on that cross, you did for me. And I want to ask you to be my savior, to apply what you did to my account, to forgive my sin. This would be a great day to do it. And as you take the bread and the cup for the first time as a new creation in Christ, you see graphically displayed the cost of your salvation. So let's take a moment uh, to pray. The Apostle Paul encourages us to examine our hearts before we come to the Lord's Supper and uh, to just confess the sin we're aware of and ask God to cleanse us from that. And so let's uh, pray together. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to sit down. And when you are ready, come and take one of these cups. Uh, beneath the cellophane is the bread. Beneath uh, the, the aluminum wrapper is, is the juice. And take that. When you're ready, bring it back to your seat and spend some time communing with the Lord. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your love for us, shown so graphically at the cross and remembered so, so visibly in these elements, the bread and the cup that speak of the body of Jesus given for us, the blood of Jesus shed for our sin. Thank you that the price was paid in full, that it's not a matter of what we do, that it's a matter of what Jesus has done. And Father, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning that needs to recognize that for the first time and say, Lord Jesus, be my Savior, let that person do that now. So Lord, we just want to come to you and confess our sin, come with clean accounts to this, your table. In Jesus' name, amen.